you might remember that we are kind of in the midst of talking about the whole idea of story. And for Lewis and Tolkien, this whole idea of story is really, really important. And it's the idea of what story are you living in? What's the meta-narrative is the big fancy word, but what's the story, what are your basic assumptions about reality and the meaning of, and purpose of life that enable you to walk through each week that help you decide what's right and wrong, what's important, uh, what's worthy of your time and investment, and what the goal of your life is. So those are obviously pretty big, pretty important questions. And Lewis and Tolkien were both convinced that the culture was pressing on people to press them to embrace a narrative that ruled out the spiritual that ruled out the supernatural, that ruled out wonder. And so those of you that have been in this class for a while will remember back when we were talking about Mythopoeia, um, this wonderful poem that Tolkien wrote that contrasts this worldview of the atheistic, nihilistic, materialistic, that what you see is what you get, uh, versus the wondrous, multi-layered, beautiful universe made by the hand of God. So... That's kind of the contrast, and we're going to be looking at that after I get the oh hellos to be quiet here. So just a little bit of review. This is what we talked about last time, and part of the idea that Lewis says in his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory, he says we are spellbound, that we don't think of secularism as being spellbinding. We don't think of that as like a soothsayer or a hypnotist or something like that. But he says the fact of the matter is that we are seduced by secularism. We are seduced by what he would call scientism, which he would distinguish from real science. The idea that science is the only way to know anything. And that as a result of that, we are trading our inheritance of this richness of all of the created beauty of the kingdom of God. We're trading that for this empty pointless, flat existence. So he says we need to be able to see that, oh, looks like I skipped a sentence in there, but we, that sustained logical argument is not the way to help people understand that secularism is a dead end and that it is life-sucking. That what you need is to be able to show them through the power of story and through the power of imagery that God intends so much more than this empty sort of drudgery day-to-day -day existence. It's sort of like the love song of J. Alfred Krofrockoff, I've measured out my life in coffee spoons. Do I dare to eat a peach? All of those kinds of things where we have this just impoverished existence. And part of the thing that is so cool about Narnia is that it enables you to enter into this wondrous world and in that wondrous world, through that doctrine of subcreation, Lewis has created a whole way of making us see wonder even when our senses are dead to it in our own world. That when we see it in Narnia, we experience wonder in a way that we don't when we're just walking around or driving around town. And part of Lewis's accomplishment in this is that He's able to do this in a remarkable writing style. And I'm not really going to go off on this, but there's a whole interesting thing to look at in terms of Lewis's economy of language 
and painting a world. Because just in the first few pages of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you have a sense of the character of all four children. You have a sense of what this place is like that they're in in England. And then in a few more pages, you have a sense of what the whole world of Narnia is like. It would have taken Tolkien two books to do that. (laughs) And it's just interesting. They're such good friends, and their writing styles are just wildly opposite from each other. But that's part of what makes it fun. But when you are in Narnia, when you're reading these stories, you really do feel like you're in this world. And you, you observe what's going on, and you get emotionally involved with it. And that's part of Lewis's genius in this. And we talked a little bit about types and shadows and Plato. We're going to come back to that. We talked about how this is rooted in the book of Hebrews. And there's that beautiful section in Hebrews 11 about the Hall of Fame of Faith. And all of these people that are looking forward to this city. They're looking forward to the city not made with hands. And they are sojourners and wanderers because they know that they were made for another homeland. And that whole idea permeates what Lewis is trying to do in Narnia. He's trying to awaken that longing, trying to awaken that sense of wonder that we need to realize that just this life, the mundane day-to-day, is not all there is. And one of the things about Narnia that is so interesting that we talked about last time is that there are two narratives there. And Lucy experiences one narrative. She goes into Narnia. She meets Mr. Tumnus. He tells her all about how, well, eventually, how the evil witch has subjected this beautiful land of Narnia to this evil spell where it's always winter and never Christmas. And that the real ruler is Aslan and everyone is waiting for Aslan to come and restore the kingdom. So she comes back with that narrative. Edmund goes exactly the same way, comes out at exactly the same lamppost. He meets the witch, and the witch enchants him right off the bat by appealing to his appetites, in this case for Turkish delight, which I don't know how many of you have ever eaten Turkish delight. I'm going to bring some one night. But it is something that you probably, you might like. I don't really like it. It's really cloyingly sweet, but it's the kind of thing you just imagine if you ate a lot of it, how unbelievably sick you would be. But be that as it may, Edmund eats all of this and he has this whole different narrative that this wonderful woman is the queen of Narnia and that she's legitimate and that this place is going to be a place where he can rise to power and subjugate his siblings to his own will and all of these things like that that are completely opposite from Lucy's experience. But it's the same place. And the idea is that as you walk through the story, you get all of these clues about which one of these narratives is really the one that's right. Not only through the evidence of what happens, but through the fruit of each one of those narratives. And it's not um, too much of a leap to say Lewis is trying to show us that the narrative that we choose to believe in this world that each of us walking out of here will walk into the way that we understand what the world is, that we have a choice about which narrative we choose to believe and that that matters ultimately and it matters day by day, moment by moment. So the whole idea also that goes on in Narnia is just this whole idea of wonder and discovery. 
And Lucy is the prima facie example of this. Um, she is just full of wonder. And it is a beautiful thing. And because we live in such a cynical age, uh, it is all the more remarkable. And just as an aside, uh, it's very interesting that Lewis chose a young girl to really be the hero of this whole story. Um, in 1940s England, that's a pretty bold thing to do. Um, another thing that you will see here is the role of Aslan. And we're going to talk a lot about Aslan tonight. Uh, but it, Aslan is one of the most remarkable creations in all of fiction. So we'll talk more about that in a minute. Then we talked a little bit about the medieval cosmology. Um, the idea that Narnia is multi-layered. And this is one of the reasons I said, if you haven't read it in a while, go back and read it again. Because it is deceptively simple. It appeals very easily to a six-year-old. But it also is profound, and it has layers of meaning and layers of theology. And it's just recently been discovered that each one of the seven books in the series corresponds to one of the medieval planets, the planets of the medieval cosmology that were believed to have certain humors and characteristics. And Lewis, as a medievalist, was fascinated with this idea, and he's woven that into these stories. But they're so um, multi-layered that no one even realized that until about 10 years ago. So, yes? Just, just real quick, if someone were to say to me, well, Martha, you know, every author sort of creates a sub-creation, you know. What do you say? I mean, because at least <laughs> fiction authors often do. Right, right. So, and, you know, when people read the same book and get different things, yep. some like yep. them, some don't. So how is this different? That's a really good question. So fiction, by definition, is a sub-creation of a type. But what sets apart Lewis and Tolkien and what they did in kind of the fantasy genre in general is that it's a different world. It's not set in our world. It's a different world. Um, Science fiction and fantasy have that in common. And in Lewis and Tolkien's work, their sub-creation is designed to express theological truth. It, whereas, you know, if you're reading Catcher in the Rye or something like that, which is fiction, um, and you might say a boarding school is like another planet. Um, but, you know, in actuality, it's really it's really not. Okay, so this is, it's like deeper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. So um, we talked about the difference in these two stories. Um, The first one, which is the primary narrative of our age, here by accident, meaningless products of a random process, the poor Henry Fishburne cockroach rock dead leaf thing, Henry's at late summit, he said I could peck on him while he was gone. Um, But the idea that you're just an accident, you could have been a cockroach just as easily. And meaning and purpose, we can try to invent them, but they're only an illusion. We're all going to die, but there's no point to any of it. And you find this if you read Sartre, Dawkins, Nietzsche, lots of other people. And the flip side, the other narrative, the Christian narrative, we are precious creatures of a loving God who has created us for something special we are asked to do. We have the privilege of being able to do good and experience purpose as we live by faith in Christ and his kingdom. So that is the choice. Now that doesn't mean that if you subscribe to the Christian worldview, 
that all of a sudden you are zapped out of this world and you don't have to deal with lines in the grocery store or paying your taxes or any of those other things. You're still in this world, but as Jesus said, he calls his followers to be in this world, but not of this world. So, uh, moving into this a little bit, the scripture verse that I want us to focus on tonight that really gets at the heart of what Lewis is trying to teach us in Narnia is Galatians 2, 19 through 20, which is, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, but not I, but Christ who liveth in me, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And it's the idea that when we come to Christ, our old self is crucified and that we receive this new life, this new Christ life that lives in us. And we are still living, but what that Christ life does, going back to Mythopoeia again, is it takes, remember, we are made in the image of God. We're part of that refracted light, that single beam of light from God that reflects his image. And we are beautiful and made fully in God's image, but we are scarred by the fall and we are scarred by sin. But when we get that Christ life in us, we begin to be transformed by the Holy Spirit to become more and more what God made us to be. And ultimately, when we are in heaven, when we are in God's country, in Aslan's country, in the kingdom of heaven, we will be freed from all of that, and our distressing disguise, our distressing mask will be taken off, and we will be beautiful in the way that God made us to be without flaw. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And that's what this verse is saying. And you see this portrayed so beautifully in the way that Lewis works with these four children who are so very real. Anybody that's been in a family with a lot of siblings, um, this is not your fairy tale family where everybody is just like, oh, thank you, brother. <laughs> yeah, They are squabbling and they are obnoxious and they're treacherous and all of that to one another. But what you see is that each one of them, when they encounter Aslan, something happens. And you're clued into this the very first time when they're in the house of the beavers and they hear Aslan's name and an explanation about him for the first time. And all four children have a different reaction. Edmund feels a pit of horror in his stomach. Susan feels elation. Peter feels excited and ennobled, and Lucy feels like that the first day of vacation is about to happen. And you just see this, this, he calls forth a response from them. And the more that the children get into relationship with Aslan and see him and follow where he leads, they become more fully themselves. They become more fully what they were made to be, and their gifts are called out of them. And Lewis caps this off at the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when they are crowned kings and queens in Narnia and they're given names. And so Edmund the traitor becomes Edmund the just. It's, it's a beautiful transformation, but it's a, a metaphor. Well, I'm going to have to come back and explain my way out of that in a minute. But um, <laughs> let, for now, we'll say it's a metaphor about what the work of Christ is in us, that he 
works in us to free us from our old selves and to help us become more and more who we are meant to be, where our gifts are able to shine forth. And the interesting thing is that Lucy, by the end of the story, she's pretty cool at the beginning, but by the end, she is more herself, more, there's more Lucy-ness in her um, than you were able to see in the beginning. And it's a beautiful thing, and you see how it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's not as if Aslan is turning the children into some sappy clone of what he thinks a spiritual person is like. Each one of them becomes glorious in their individuality, but it's a glorious individuality that is under the aegis of Aslan and his kingdom. And as their love for him grows, their joy in being in his presence grows as well. So there's deep beauty in that. But one of the interesting things here is Eustace Scrub. Um, Eustace Scrub, this is another one of Lewis's great lines where he starts off um, the story of the voyage and the dawn treader and says something like, there was a boy named Eustace Scrub and he almost deserved it. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, what a name. And Eustace Scrub, if you have not read this book, please go read it again. It's so funny. Eustace Scrub is the most obnoxious, whiny, entitled, complaining, very relevant today. Um, but just really an obnoxious brat. And yet... He, too, is transformed by Aslan. And you have in your handouts a little thing about um, the lament of Eustace Scrub. And for those of you, this is a little bit of a spoiler alert, sorry, but uh, in the story, Eustace is so unbelievably selfish, so unbelievably self-centered. He doesn't care about anyone else. He wants what he wants, and he's especially interested in outdoing all of the other children to show that he is more special, he can get more stuff than they can, he's more extra special than they are. And so he discovers when they're on this voyage where he feels like he has not gotten his rights and they are not respecting him and how dare they treat him like this. And then he finds this dragon horde and he's like, whoa, gold! And so he's like, oh, look at all this stuff, I can get all this stuff. And he finds the biggest gold bracelet that he can find that's kind of an armband and he puts it around his arm. He's like, I am so cool. These other kids are just going to die when they see how awesome I am. And then he sees more and more gold and he's like trying to gather all that he can get. And then all of a sudden he starts noticing he's feeling funny and he's not able to move as well and he feels like his balance is off. And he gets really thirsty, and then he looks down into a reflecting pool and sees that he has become a dragon. So he has become a dragon, and for a while he's a little bit okay with that, but then he very quickly realizes that this is terrible. And he can't undragon himself. He flies by the boat where his friends are, and they want to kill him because they think the dragon's trying to kill him. Um, it's just a whole nightmare. And what ultimately happens is that Aslan comes to him and says that the only way that he can be undragoned is for Aslan to rip off all of the scales. And so Aslan sinks his claws into him and rips the dragon scale off. 
and Eustace thinks he's going to die. He thinks this is the most awful thing that's ever happened. But then he learns there's a whole nother scale of dragon skin under that. And then Aslan has to rip that off too. And so finally, he rips through all of these dragon scales and then plunges Eustace into this clear, clean well of pure water. And when he emerges, he is a different person. Which if you were at the service tonight where we were talking about baptism... Um, that's exactly what Lewis is talking about there. But it is a beautiful story of how what we think we can master ends up mastering us. That Eustace's greed and selfishness end up trapping him in a prison that no amount of trying to be good can ever get him out of, no amount of therapy, no amount of eating right, no amount of self-help books. The only thing that can freak him is Aslan and a relationship with Aslan and letting Aslan do the work in his life that needs to be done, painful though it may be. So it is a beautiful illustration of what Jesus does. And this little handout that you have um, is talking a little bit about the song, um, The Lament of Eustace Scrub. And just in passing, I want to say this is part of the thing that is so remarkable about Lewis. You don't find indie pop groups that are writing hit songs about very many fictional characters in children's books from the 1940s. You know, you just don't. But these stories resonate across time and across generations and across cultures. And if you look at the little italics, um, you'll see this. these are the lyrics of the song. Brother, forgive me. We both know I'm the one to blame. When I saw my demons, I knew them well and welcomed them. But I'll come around someday. Father, have mercy. I know I have gone astray. When I saw my reflection, it was a stranger beneath my face. But I'll come around someday. When I touch the water, they tell me I could be set free. So I'll come around Someday, And this whole idea, the article talks about the joy of this transformation, the joy of being undragoned. We all need to be undragoned. And Jesus longs to do that if we will but give him the opportunity. And the, uh, the story of Eustace Scrub is another beautiful one of what happens when people encounter Aslan. Now, just as an aside, I don't have time to really go into this, but there's a whole nother subtext in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and with Eustace and a couple of other characters about addiction. And in our culture, there are a lot of people that struggle with addictions of different kinds. Um, Turkish delight, it's not an accident that that's what Lewis chose. Um, people in the 1940s in England, if you thought about Turkey, the first thing that you thought about was... Opium. And there were lots of people who were addicted to opium. And if you look at what happens with Edmund and the Turkish delight, at first it's just something that he likes. But then he begins to crave it. And he craves it to the point that he will sell his soul and he will sell his family and he will sell his own life just to get a little bit more of it. And if any of you, like I, have some people in my family that struggle with addiction, that is exactly the way addiction works. And it takes over. It's this whole thing of what you thought you could master 
masters you instead. And it's uh, if you know somebody struggling with that, these the stories are wonderful um, for them to be able to look at look at that, look at addiction and how it plays out, and how Aslan intervenes with that. So, uh, just an aside. The other thing that's so interesting here, and Lewis again is. Um, being prophetic, I don't know how many of you have recently taken any courses in creative writing at the university level, um, or even an AP course in, at Ashley Hall or Porter or anything like that. But these days, what will happen is when you are in creative writing classes, they will get on you to not just tell things, but to show things. This whole idea that you can tell people, but they're not really going to be engaged. But if you show them through your writing or through the circumstances or the scenery, that will engage them. Well, Lewis was on to that a long time before this trend. And what he said about the Narnia stories is that they are not precisely an allegory or a metaphor. And he got a little annoyed when people insisted that they were an allegory. And the reason for that is Lewis is a strict constructionist about language, and an allegory technically means there's a one-to-one correspondence of each thing in the story. And in Narnia, there's not. There's some things where there is, but there are other things where there's not. And he said that he preferred to view Narnia as what he called a supposal. And he said, suppose that there was this wondrous land of Narnia. Suppose that this beautiful land of Narnia, as it was being created, that an evil force of a witch from another world came in and enchanted it with a bad enchantment, how would the creator save that land? And his answer to that was Aslan, that Aslan, the great lion, would come into that land and would save that land. And so he has the same role as Jesus does in our world, but it's not exactly the same. He's not a one-to-one for Jesus, but there are a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of things that are very similar. So that supposal is interesting. But the thing that is so beautiful in this is Lewis doesn't um, pound you over the head. He lets you see, he shows you, and then he lets you draw your own conclusions. He lets your sense of wonder lead you down the path, as it were. So... Aslan and the Deep Magic. Um, this is one of the great scenes out of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And again, if you haven't read it recently, please go read it again. I promise you it will be a blessing. Um, but this part is right after the witch has put Aslan to death. And I'm just going to read this. I hope no one who reads this book has been quite as miserable as Susan and Lucy were that night. But if you have been... If you've been up all night and cried till you have no more tears left in you, you will know that there comes in the end a sort of quietness. You feel as if nothing was ever going to happen again. At any rate, that was how it felt to these two. Hours and hours seemed to go by in this dead calm, and they hardly noticed that they were getting colder and colder. At that moment, they heard from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, deafening noise, as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. The stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end, and there was no Aslan. 
So we're going to quickly shift gears and watch a little clip from the movie of the scene, if I can get it to work. So that is uh, one of the great quotations out of the story. And that last paragraph down there, it means, said Aslan, that the, the witch knew the deep magic. There is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. And this is, I think, one of Lewis's greatest theological statements where he's talking about the resurrection and about the undoing of death and talking about the providence of God and the design that's built into the kingdom of God and all of creation um, that he's referring to as the deep magic, uh, which I think is a, a wonderful image for that. And it's part of the reason that our hearts thrill when we read that passage. And you see with those girls... It's very much like the women who come to the tomb on Easter morning. And one of the things we've lost with our uh, the benefit of hindsight that we have is we don't understand that they did not believe Jesus was going to rise from the dead. They thought everything was over. This was the end of all of their hopes and dreams that they had invested these years of their life to no avail and that they were likely to be killed and rounded up by the Romans or the Jews as traitors. And when they went and they started realizing that the tomb was empty, their first thought was the same that you would have if you went to the grave of a loved one and it was dug up 
They thought it was grave robbers or somebody that had desecrated the grave. And it was only later that they began to understand what Jesus had been promising meant a literal, physical resurrection. And the girls think Aslan is gone and that he's never coming back. And that's why the scene is so profoundly moving and is the centerpiece of when the whole tide begins to change. Because once Aslan's resurrection happens, the witch goes out of business in pretty short order. Um, she's still flailing around. But the one thing I really love in the movie, there are a lot of things I don't like in the movie, but one of the things that I think they get really right is after Aslan uh, is resurrected, there's a scene where the witch is trying to go in the sleigh and there's no snow. And she's like yelling at her little dwarf slave about it. And, you know, he makes some smart remark about the fact that there's no snow or ice and she just hits him with the whip, which, you know, pretty much says what the witch's character is like. But it's that whole idea that once death is conquered through this deep magic, death itself begins to work backwards. And you see that when they go to the witch's castle and Aslan breathes on the statues all of the creatures that have been turned into stone by the witch, and they're all restored to life. I mean, there's just so many parallels with scripture that it's just almost unbelievable. So it's a, a beautiful example of that. And I want to talk just a little bit about Aslan, because Aslan is a remarkable, remarkable creation. And if we get a hold a little bit about what Aslan is like, I would submit to you that it can be transformational in a positive way of your view of Jesus and what your relationship with him is like. And part of that is that Lewis makes very clear in these stories that Aslan is wild. Aslan is not a tame lion. He is good with a capital G. He is the definition of goodness, but he is not tame. You can't tell him what to do. You can't expect that he is going to go along with your agenda. You can't expect that he is going to do things the way that you've always thought they should work out. He is going to do what he is going to do. And what he does is, by definition, good. And the problem that I think many of us have is that we have been taken in by what McGrath, I think, very accurately calls a reductionist, rationalistic viewpoint about God. And what that means is that we have been concerned about doctrine. And doctrine is important. Don't get me wrong. Doctrine is very important. But doctrine is not Jesus. God did not send a doctrine to save us. God sent his son in flesh and blood, who died in agony on the cross, spilling his lifeblood for our sins. That's not a doctrine. That is a person. And Jesus, much like Aslan, Jesus was very unpredictable. Um, there's a great book um, that some of y'all will know um, that's called Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World by um, Becky Peppert. That's a book about evangelism. And it talks about how we have these stereotypes about Jesus that are just wrong. And one of her, my favorite sentences that she wrote is that Jesus was not your ideal Rotarian. 
And yeah, sort of the idea is that he was not a rule follower in the sense of the rules that the culture imposed. He was living in full accord with the capital T truth of the kingdom of God. And when there were cultural barriers that got in the way of that, he just crashed right through them and didn't really care about it. But for many of us, we have got God in a cage. We, we have this idea that we can't cope with God if we don't understand what he's doing. And so we want to put him in a box or in a cage where we can control what he's doing and that we think that our destiny should be to be healthy, wealthy, wise, and pain-free. And so if we can accomplish that, or in one word, to be comfortable, uh, then everything is good. But the problem is, if you look at the scriptures, there's nowhere a promise that we're going to ever be comfortable. And the part of the ride is that when you see Aslan in these stories, you're so drawn to him, and you want to be one of the children riding on that incredible privilege that one time he lets them ride on his back. You, know, you want to be up there. You want to be in the adventure. You don't want to be left behind because when Aslan's around, the colors are richer, the sounds are more beautiful, and wondrous things happen. And when Aslan's not around, things um, begin to turn gray, if you will. So part of, the, part of what Lewis is trying to say here is that God's reality and God's kingdom are so much bigger than our minds can comprehend and God himself is bigger than we can comprehend. And he talks a little bit, um, McGrath does, a little bit about the whole argument that Lewis makes that we'll talk about later, um, where he says, we have desires for things. We have a desire for food, and there's food. We have a desire for water, and there's water. We have a desire for sex, and there's sex. The, all these things that we have desires for, there's something to satisfy those desires. There is also a desire planted deep in people for God, for some kind of ultimate purpose and meaning. And so he says that's a pointer that there's such a thing as God to be found if we are open to that. But Freud, and I would love to spend some time just dismantling Freud, but it's not really what we're about in this class, but come talk to me sometime and I'll tell you the story. But Freud and Feuerbach, who were big in the 19th century, um, their whole idea was God is a projection. Wish fulfillment that all cultures from the beginning of time have imagined this bearded old guy, parent kind of thing that makes you feel better about life. There's some old guy that's like sort of got things under control. But he says that's all, that's just an illusion and we've made that up because it's comforting. But Lewis says no, in fact, The wish fulfillment is really going on from Freud and Feuerbach because they don't like the idea of God because God says there are certain things that you should do and there are certain things that you shouldn't do. And that, you know, for Freud, that's repression. Repression is bad. You know, you're an animal and your instincts are good. So you should just go with your instincts. You know, if it feels good, do it. And what... Lewis is trying to say is that inventing the idea that there's no God can equally be wish fulfillment. That if you don't want a God to interfere from your quest for hedonism, that 
you can make at least as good a case as the other way around about wish fulfillment. So, the silver chair. How many of y'all have read the silver chair? All right, if you have not read the silver chair, please, sometime before you die, read that book. You don't have to read it for in here, although that would be nice. Uh, But sometime read it. It is one of Lewis's best books, and it's so important right now because it's exactly what's going on in our world. And this is his story that is an illustration of Plato's cave. And we talked about Plato's cave a couple of weeks ago, and you have a handout that's actually the quotation from the Republic that's the part about Plato's cave. And just for those of you who work here, Plato's cave is basically the idea, just imagine that brick arch over there is a cave. It's a cave that goes way back. It's completely dark, and there's six chairs lined up there, and six of you are tied up there, and you can only look toward the blackness in the back of the cave, and that's all you've been able to do since you were a baby. Um, when the sun comes up, you don't know what the sun is, but there's this light that sort of comes in for a number of hours during the day, and you see some shadows. And you notice patterns in the shadows, you begin to give those names. And so day after day, that's what you experience over and over and over again, and that is your reality. And then one day, one person gets loose and comes out from there and sees the sun and sees the blue sky and trees and other people walking around and animals and all of this beauty. And then he goes back to the other people. He's like, guys, there's this whole world out there. There's a sun up in the sky. All we've seen is shadows. And all the people that are chained there say he's what? Crazy. Crazy. (laughs) Or as we said the other night, cray-cray. Not just crazy. He's like really crazy. And the idea is that We believe a lot of times, like those people that are stuck in the chairs, that the shadow land is all there is. And we forget that the kingdom of God is what is more real than our day-to-day existence. And so the silver chair is all about that. And Prince Caspian, um, well, actually no, Prince William, who's descended from Caspian, is captured by a witch who is a snake. Nice little image there with a little Genesis reference. Um, Captured by a snake, and he is tied to this chair in this underworld kingdom. And the whole premise of the underworld that this woman is the ruler of is there is no overworld. There's no light. There's no sun. All that's real is under the earth. And the prince agrees with that because he is in the spell except for one hour each day. And that one hour, he comes back to his senses, and he has to be tied in the chair because he's so desperate to escape. Well, Aslan calls some children to come and rescue this prince, and they pick up a marshwiggle named Puddleglum along the way, who's a very dour, um, slightly cantankerous kind of creature. And they finally get in there, and they're trying to free the prince, but the witch tries to enchant them. And she gets them to start chanting, there is no overworld, there is no sun. And they see this lamp that's in there. And she says, oh, the lamp is what's real. There is no sun. And they're like, no, 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 no. The lamp is just an image of what the sun does. And she's like, no, no, you're wrong. And then she's like, what holds the sun up? And they get (laughs) sort of stumped by that. And the enchantment is going more and more. And then finally, 
Puddleglum, who's the Marsh Wiggle, realizes they're all about to be just completely taken in and probably put to death. And he very bravely knows that a lot of times the answer to break an enchantment is major pain. And he sticks his hand in the fire so that he's burned. And the smell of burning Marsh Wiggle flesh breaks the enchantment and they realize what's going on and they're ultimately able to be freed. But it's a very important story for our age because we don't appreciate how much secularism is just pressing on us. The idea that there is no God, there is no supernatural, and that if you believe that, you are slightly out of your mind or majorly out of your mind. So it's important to understand that. And this whole idea of if you can only put, and you see this in very liberal theology, um, you will read theologians that say God does not intervene in the world. Miracles are not possible. And Jeff talked about this in his Easter sermon a little bit, that miracles are by definition not possible. And so the supernatural is by definition impossible. So you put God in this box. And part of what Lewis says, and one of the things McGrath builds on, is the idea that if you can define Jesus and you can put him in a cage, you've suddenly made God in your own image and you no longer have a God who is worthy of worship. And that's what you see in Aslan, his wildness and his goodness with a capital G and his truth with a capital T make him worthy of worship. And that's the way that it should be in our relationship with God. So... um, Hebrews 12, this is a, another just wonderful verse. I'm going to run through this quickly because we're almost out of time. But I want us to focus on the middle part. It says, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. And the idea is that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus. And that doesn't mean when you're driving down the road to like have your icon of Jesus and look at that instead of looking at where you're going. But what it does mean, metaphorically, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And all through the stories, if you've read them recently, you'll remember sometimes the children think they've seen Aslan, but they're not sure. And the more secular, the farther away from Aslan they get, the harder it is for them to see Aslan. And Lucy is the one that guards most dearly her ability to be able to see him. But contemplating, focusing on Jesus, having that be the reason that gets us through whatever we have to get through, because ultimately we are being led to joy. Notice that what this says is Jesus is the pioneer and the perfecter. That means the one that goes first so that we can go after him. So that as we consider that joy, the joy of the kingdom of God, then whatever we have to go through, even if it's in the cross, is worth it. Because Jesus has blazed that trail for us. And we are to consider him. Consider is a big, powerful word. Um, Consider means to contemplate to dwell and to meditate on, consider him so we don't lose heart. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand 
if you've lost heart about anything in the past week. But it's easy to lose heart when you live in a culture that's beating on you with secularism all the time. But the antidote to that is right here. It's to focus on Jesus and to consider him. And there's a beautiful example of this in The Magician's Nephew. Um, Again, that's a great book to read. In that book, there's an ancient kingdom called Charn, and they, these children land in it by accident through magic. And they go in, and they're all these beautifully dressed lords and ladies that are frozen in time. Not cold, but just frozen still. And there's this huge banquet, and nobody's moving. There's not a sound. There's nothing. But there's this one bell there on the table on a little stand, and a little hammer for the bell, and then a little piece of doggerel poetry about whether you dare to ring the bell. So, of course, Diggory, being a boy, can't resist this and comes up and rings the bell. And when he rings the bell, it wakes the people up, but most especially, it wakes up the witch, who is really evil and really bad news. And so, to make a long story short, he ends up, Diggory ends up dragging the evil witch by accident into Narnia while Aslan's creating it. And she starts causing havoc in this new creation of Narnia. And Aslan speaks to Diggory about it, and he, he asks the question, who rang the bell? And Diggory prevaricates for a little while, and he says, I rang the bell. And, then, and it says Aslan is just gazing at him the whole time, gazing into his eyes. And Diggory comes up with some flimsy excuse, and Aslan gazes into his eyes and says, Really? And eventually Diggory just completely comes clean and breaks down in tears and is so sorry. But it's the whole idea that it is only when we contemplate Christ that we really can understand the full import of our sinfulness and how desperately we need his help. Because we want to rationalize our way out of everything. And Lewis does such a great job of showing through character after character that that's not possible. And then the other thing that he does, and this is one of his great literary achievements, is anyone who's an author will tell you that bad it's much easier to write about interesting bad characters than it is to write about people that are the personification of goodness. Because we usually think goodness is boring, which that's an indication of where our culture is as well. But what Lewis does is he creates these creatures who are models of goodness, who are models of character virtues, like Reepicheep the mouse, who is like the most unlikely hero. Who would ever think in a world of fantasy creatures that a mouse would be the great warrior when there are these giant bears and everything else? It's the most unlikely thing. But Lewis makes this mouse one of the great heroes of all of the Chronicles of Narnia across several stories. And then Tolkien does the same thing with these hobbits, these little short creatures who don't do much of anything, who are not renowned for their intellect or their literary tradition or their culture, but they literally carry the sin of the world in this ring and destroy it. It's a remarkable thing. And there's this great quotation um, from Gandalf where he talks about this, and he says, Saruman is a wizard, somebody with great power, but who's used it wrongly and gone over to the dark side. 
Saruman believes it is only great power that can hold evil in check. But that is not what I have found. I have found it is the small, everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay. Simple acts of kindness and love. Why, Bilbo Baggins? Perhaps it is because I am afraid, and he gives me courage. And you see what Gandalf is saying there played out over and over again in the Chronicles of Narnia, that these small, seemingly insignificant characters are the ones that change the tide and the course of history through their doing small deeds, doing what they can with the gifts that they have in the place where Aslan has put them, and the result of that is that Aslan's kingdom comes into its own. So um, we're going to stop with that for tonight. I'm sorry we ran out of time, so we're not going to do discussion. But um, a couple of things to think about. First, please look at these handouts. Uh, one that I want to particularly commend to you that's very interesting is this one from The Atlantic. Um, the Atlantic is not by any means a Christian magazine. Uh, and one of the things that was so interesting is they were um, interviewing a lot of popular authors who are popular not in the way that Danielle Steele um, is popular. Sorry if you like Danielle Steele. But um, perhaps more intellectually oriented authors. And they were interviewing them about the books of their heart. What are the things that really speak to you? And one of the people they interviewed uh, talked about how C.S. Lewis and Narnia changed his life. And it's a fascinating interview um, about the Narnia books and Lewis, and this guy gets it. I mean, he really gets it. So it's just another example of the most unlikely places that Lewis is still influencing people who are leaders in our culture. Um, one brief plug, I hope you saw my email about the Lord of the Rings movie at the Charleston Music Hall. Um, the extended version of the movie on the big screen is going to be an amazing thing. Um, also, because Charleston Music Hall has a fabulous sound system, and the music, the soundtrack for The Lord of the Rings is one of the great musical creations of the past 50 years. So if you can go, um, I promise it will be a when blessing. Yes, 6 o'clock, the doors open. 6.30, um, the movie starts. And if you want to dress as a hobbit, or a wizard, um, you might get in free if the box office thinks you're up to the standard. So, on that note, let me close us with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful creation of Narnia. Lord, we think about how impoverished we would be if Lewis had never written these stories. So we thank you for using Tolkien and others and the work of your Holy Spirit to draw these stories out that we might learn through analogy and supposal about the things of your kingdom. Lord, we pray that you would help us to worship you, to understand the goodness and truth and beauty that are caught up in who you are, and that you would draw us day by day more and more into contemplating Jesus, that we might be drawn into his kingdom. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. <laughs>